This is Matt Taylor. And this is Jay Rankin. And you're listening to The Flowcast. Sounds good. Nice. Are we going? Yeah, we're going. We're on. Oh, we're on right now? Yeah. How much do you reckon that first glass of wine was? One and a half standards, one standard. I'm much more aware now. You'll be fine to drive. <laughs> I'm just having such a great time. You can stay here if you want. You, get so- you have to be in the, at work in the morning. You work 9.30 at the track. Oh, no, I sleep in. It what is a you, sleep in. What time are you waking up? Well, if I was 8.30, probably. I do, but I know we just talked about sleep, but... What time I, are you going to go to bed? I catch up on the weekends. Well, I was going to watch all that World Speed Summit stuff tonight. So, midnight... Eight hours for me is a big sleep in. Mm. <laughs> I know, it sounds bad. <laughs> I'm getting better. I am. Like, I'm you just gotta like, get better yeah, at going to bed. Like, I know you get a lot, you want, like, you're not just sitting there lounging around. You're probably, like, reading, listening yeah. to all that stuff, watching all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But you probably do need to be more I'm not, to be that. honest, it's almost like, for me, I'm trying to level up at the moment. Like, I'm not, I've had enough time of not learning. I'm in a big learning phase, mm. and because I can't train and stuff. I'm I'm trying to consume as much learning as I can at the moment now. So for the next two or three years, I'm set. Like I've got a bit. So like Charles Polkon does this thing now, where he just for one month a year he does all his readings. So from like June to July, he'll read eight hours a day, and like he'll still read stuff as it comes up. But he's like, okay, I'm going to do a whole year's learning in one month. And that's all he does. So he doesn't books out, doesn't book any seminars. Like he might still train and stuff. Like he still lives a life, but. And I thought that was just really interesting. Like, so for me, I'm like part time for a year. <laughs> now that I can't train, I'm like, my, they're my sport time. So I try to put that in. But you'd be proud. I made a um, <laughs> you'd be Excel proud. spreadsheet. It might be here actually, and I've color coded it all. Here it is. Have a look at this. So that's all the purples. My sleep, because it's dark, deep sleep. I've got my work. <laughs> I've got my blues, my free time. My grey is my transition times. My red is my entrepreneurial time, or my upskilling time. Um, and it's made me accountable because I was losing like, you know, half an hour of sleep here, half an hour of sleep here by just by dawdling. So I can get an extra half an hour of sleep there. I'm more mm. aware of it. So now I look at this and I'm like, okay, so Monday night I get a sleep in going into Tuesday. You didn't go to bed until 1.30. What day is that? No, no, no. Cause I sleep down here. This is all sleep too. Oh. So that's the night before. So I go to sleep at 11. Most oh, times. so the night before. Yeah. And so the hard one is the Tuesday night sleep. And the Wednesday night sleep 11 till 5 into the Thursday. Because that's like, that's like max 12 hours over two days. So that's hard. But now I'm getting smarter. So I'll nap in this free time here. And if I need, I'll nap in this training session here. Yes. Yeah, so and then I'll train That's it, pretty good. I'll train All I'd want to see is a bit more of a... Sh- See how that the, the yeah. wake up time jags yeah. up and down? Yes. Yeah, so just a bit more of a steady. But what it's done is hard I've, I've identified this as a heavy block but I have the option to nap here and nap here because I will I won't really go to bed early on a Sunday I know that doesn't sound good but because I'm working up to Sunday midday that's this uh, this block here is like Matt's magic half day <laughs> so that's a special time <laughs> that's a special time <laughs> that's a special time so anything that happens in that time is really just about <laughs> nothing work related so if it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm enjoying company and stuff I'm going to maximize yeah. that because it's not going to happen for a week but as I said it's not going to happen forever I'm aware of the risk it's a calculated decision it's an investment in other things so you know 
you know, I'm pleased to hear you thinking about it. Yeah. I'm much more consciously aware. And I had to be. I had to become, like, you have to be a role model for what you do. And so if I'm asking people to sleep more, well, fuck, I've got to be accountable. Like, I can't be afford to be a hypocrite. Like, that's with my own training and stuff. Like, I still don't program any exercises I can't do. Mm-hmm. My athletes don't do handstands. Not, sorry, the athletes I work with don't do handstands. The, they don't do snatches because I, I can't do them. I can't expect them to do it. I don't know what it feels like. You know, and then I go out there and say, well, sleep. Well, that's not very good, so... You're right, but at the same time, I'm sleeping as much as I potentially could be. Almost, probably like 85% there. Yeah. But it's the other thing about habits and behaviours is you can't identify it and then change it straight away. No, no it, way, it, no. It takes time. It, it, takes, it takes time to accumulate habitual change to the state in which it becomes sustainable. Because then that's why diets, yo-yo and habit and, and sleep pattern and all this stuff, yo, is because you need to make sustainable changes. So things like putting the blue light blockers in, you know, now I'm in a much more social environment where I live. So I wind down a little bit earlier and a little bit quicker. And so it's easier. So I am getting to bed earlier naturally. Um, so it's sort of, you know, you it's it's sort of setting up nice as more sustainable transition instead of just going, oh, yeah. But I mean, I won't work like this forever. Like it's probably more of the point of actually working less. Like it's probably like... The extra work you're doing, the financial incentive isn't worth the health repercussions. And it, it, but it also yeah, it just depends on and how long you're doing it for and what you actually. Because like, I'm really working full time, twelve to eight, but I'm making myself work full time and extra and a half mm. because I'm trying to financially up myself and yeah that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, that's pretty cool. Table. It is. Do you stay up really late making it? No, I didn't. I did it on my Sunday. I did it on my Sunday free time, funnily enough. Yeah. Well, do you want to move on to the next topic? Yep, injuries. So you have a specific direction or a specific type of injury that you wanted to go into? No, I want to talk about the my philosophy on injuries first, mm-hmm. and then maybe we'll talk about specific injuries. Um, but it's just I'm just really angry at the moment. Why are you angry? <laughs> Because I just think, I think we look at things wrong. Like, I want to, I'll first, so? like, let's talk about allied health first. And let's try and talk out, I guess, the practices that are out there. And I think it's really important that people understand who to see for what situations. So I guess our big three is physio, osteo, and chiro are probably the three main ones where people say, oh, I've got my chiro, or I've got my physio guy, I've got my osteo. They're probably the big three. And then you've got myo, um, you've got maybe a massage therapist or people who have got upskilling on stuff in different countries might be termed a manual therapist or a mm. sports therapist. I'm, feel, I'm hearing manual therapist a lot more. Yeah, manual therapist is more because things like ART and like I've, we've talked about like you can get your dry needling licenses through these avenues and stuff. So people who really understand the human body well, and this is something I'm looking going into, can upskill down the track. They can have really good anatomy, really good physiology, understanding the body, really good understanding of movement, and then just get the therapeutic license. I think that, I think that they're quite successful. You look at a lot of people in the states and stuff who are working really high up. You see a lot. It's older coaches and stuff who have done the S and C cycle. They've they've done like a specific cycle of like athletics or gymnastics or something, and then they go into therapy because they just see the way the human body mm. moves and they just understand the anatomy and the functional anatomy so strongly that it just makes sense to, to, to address what suits them. But I think, so firstly, like physio, great for diagnostic purposes and great for acute treatments. And we're just talking general. Like general, yeah. So yeah. don't, so you, there'll be physios out there that are amazing. 
There'll be physios that are out there that like are better. Like anything, like anything. That are better than strength and conditioning coaches. There will be chiros that are better than some physios. There will be osteos that are better than some chiros. And it goes on and on and on. But fundamentally, physio's role is for acute diagnosis and acute treatment. Anything beyond that is upskilling, knowledge, and acquisition over time and experience. But fundamentally, that's their responsibility. Osteos is more holistic approach at movement, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and we might, I don't know, it'd be great to have some feedback from this as we go, um, which will generally look at how the body moves as a system and address manual therapies and adjustments from there. And then Cairo stems predominantly from the spine and um, goes into other manual therapies I from there. I feel like chiropractors in the last few years are really, really changing. It's almost like now you can't just be, you can't just crack. You can't just do a few cracks here and no. there and send someone away. It's because the standard is rising in terms of the scope. And, uh, you know, as as we progress as society, the demand for service or quality of service should increase as our acquisition of information increases. So 50 years ago, we didn't really understand long-term rehab processes. Now we do. Now it is the responsibility of allied health people to understand this. So I think that's really important. The thing, I think the hard one about Cairo is... It's a different learning environment. It's a different school. I don't. It's not really degree based. Commonly, it's more Cairo school. It's yeah. It's been associated with vo- more voodoo treatments about how it can cure different diseases and stuff. And I'm not really going to go into that because it just doesn't make sense to me. And I don't like talking about stuff that doesn't make sense. But if you have a good Cairo, that's great. If you have a good osteo, that's great. If you have a good physio, that's great. But fundamentally, that's their roles. My therapist deals more with manual therapies musculoskeletally, so more massage-based and needling-based, and that is an advancement from remedial massage education. Remedial massage is obviously hands-on therapy with the opportunity to go into things like cupping and dry needling. Um, in terms of education, physio is probably the highest level, yeah. four years full-time, um, the hardest to get into, probably demands a high standard, and then at the lower end, you've got remedial massage and that sort of stuff. So I think that's sort of the precedence for that. The other one that's recent, that's really only been around for the last 15 years, is exercise physiology. Now, exercise physiology fundamentally deals with exercise, health, and disease-related situations. Mm-hmm. The the foundation of exercise physiology would really stem from the health system having too much issue with um, doctors, having too much workload dealing with dealing with things they couldn't really address and needing to partner from a healthcare system perspective. So exercise physiology really grew from there. Now exercise physiology scans across a whole plethora of things and you've got exercise physiologists working in rehab. We work with them. We integrate with exercise physiologists in a rehab setting. Um, and then fundamentally for university and stuff, they'll deal predominantly with health and disease related patients, people with like acute and chronic osteoarthritis, diabetes, those sorts of conditions, so metabolic diseases. Is, like in your workplace, Yep. How do you find like the difference between, say, because you've got a few ex-physics in there, don't mm-hmm. you? Yep. How do you find, like, is there a big difference between the way that you might look at someone who in like in a rehab perspective yep. and they look at someone? Is there much difference? Yes. Yeah, so it, the thing is, and this is what stems, this is why you're a product of your environment. So educationally, because the structure of exercise physiology in a rehab setting is around... Um, Rehabilit- so the great thing about exercise physiology is they have long-term strategies for rehabilitation. How performance coaches or strength and conditioning look at movement is really about, well, what is the optimal technical model? What yeah. does that look like? What is optimal sport? What's the ultimate outcome? And our goal is to get either an injured athlete or an uninjured athlete to that standard. Our information on how to process that is different 
in terms of like I'm talking about general sports science mm. and general EP is different. So a general EP is looking at different things to a general sports scientist. So we are looking at the athlete or the client from two different perspectives. So integration is as much a blessing as it is, you know, um, a curse because we might both try to cue something completely differently because we're both trying to achieve completely different mm. things, yet long-term we're both trying to achieve the exact same thing. Yeah. The thing that gets confusing, and I guess we're strengthening the issue and the issues I face is because we deal with things that happen pre-injury, like we should be held accountable for injuries. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And, and we do, and I hold myself accountable and touch wood. You know, we have a terrific record and, and touch wood again. I hope it stays that way. Um, because we really should be at the forefront of prevention and we can't measure that. Like I can't tell you over 12 months how many injuries we prevented because they didn't happen. Yeah. So it's very hard to measure that. Whereas exercise physiology is employed in a rehabilitation setting. So their goal is to return to play. I think it's really important that exercise physiology understands what that return to play looks like. And I think that's where the gap currently sits. So for, for me, for example, like plyometrics is a really advanced really technical system in terms of how we train it. It's not just jumping up and down. It's not jumping laterally. It's not jumping horizontally. There's a lot that's happening from a stretch shortening perspective, from a muscle physiology perspective, and it's a very long process of development. So having return to play being a bunch of jumps to address plyometrics isn't thorough enough for me. I want to accumulate more of that sort of stuff. In a return to play setting, all we need to do is return them back to their previous play, but the reason they occurred the injury in the first place is because they're deficient somewhere. And this is my big point is that there's really only, and this is my philosophy on injuries, this is non-contact for the record. So contact is a completely different. So you put contact over here in the far right, it's basically um, you know, potholes, uneven surfaces, external forces, forces like. that's caused an injury and you can't really do much. But that's called luck. Yep. You know, we, live in, we live in, there's luck. It's like a hit by a car. Yeah, it's, yeah, well, it's like we're hit by a car, but there's luck. So, and then, <laughs> so that's one. And then the other one yeah, is our non-contact injuries, which in my opinion can really only be created by two things. It can really only be created by, there's a bug on the mic. Um, it can really only, <laughs> that, be, okay, yeah. it can really only be created by um, incorrect motor patterns. So essentially what's happening is, is the body is moving incorrectly biomechanically for that activity and therefore is putting more increased force or stress on a certain joint at which point that joint can't handle it. Now this is the thing where the interrelation, the, the relationship happens is the other component is load tolerance. And I don't want this to be confused with load management because I believe that load management is more of a byproduct or a feedback tool for what our load tolerance capacity should be or what we're trying to achieve. So if you think about it like this, if I'm trying to increase someone's robustness or resistance to fatigue or injury or reduction of chance of injury, what I'm not trying to do is I'm not trying to manage their load I'm trying to increase their capacity to handle load. So if load... I'm trying to build their resilience. Yes. So if injury occurs under fatigue, my goal is to increase their capacity to resist fatigue. So that's not about load management because load management yeah. is saying, okay, you're at your fatigue point. Let's stop you. Yeah. That's not going to make them better. That's acknowledging where that's it is. That's just the limit. Now, that's, re that's re reducing the chance of injury occurring. I admit that. But it's not improving the capacity yeah. to train more. Now, if we... Now because if they're out of the gym setting or out of the, without a coach... Yeah. Are they going to be able to manage And what that, happens that on game day when they've met their load management and they've got to keep playing? Stop. They're yeah. in the red zone. They're at a risk. So what we need to ensure is we need to ensure that their movement patterns are as good as they can be. And we need to constantly strive so for, for that. something like that, would you be then getting, for example, so you're trying to get them into, that, into a state so they might be fatigued or they're really, you know, reaching their limit. Yeah. And then you're just trying to continue them 
that you trying to train them in that in that red red zone to from, then what keep from, perfect form or no not necessarily you could do it that way to an extent and I think that's probably the way that rehab taps it a little bit for me it's more about you develop the qualities so the better your motor control your better your motor skills the the better you can execute it, right? So we really want to practice the motor skill in the best environment that allows that motor skill to be practiced. And that's going to be relatively fresh, under little fatigue. Can you give us an example? So that would be just like doing good quality jumps when the technique breaks down, rest, and then go again. So say we look at the, um, um, well, one, one we commonly do is a box jump and an altitude drop. So we're jumping onto the box, we're teaching force production, and we're doing an altitude drop from the same high, but we're breaking the two qualities up. So they're doing the altitude drop separately. They're concentrating on force absorption. If they're starting to fatigue and they're going to say valgus or something through the knees and they're dipping through the hips and their foot's collapsing, we might stop it there and give them rest and practice it again. So what you're saying is you wouldn't just keep going and going and going until they can't stop. No. You're going to keep going until you feel see it break down. Give them yeah. a rest until they can, like the shortest amount of rest they can get until they can go back and perfect yeah, it Yeah, so... W- for example, if I'm addressing the motor skill, it might be something like maybe the arabesque or something, single leg arabesque, and I'm, and I'm practicing it, and then they get so much fatigue through the ankle that they fatigue and stop. I, don't, I need to improve the quality, and that's whether I need to improve the quality, so I don't need to worry about the fatigue mechanism because I'm going to do that differently. So we address fatigue by increasing the, the tolerance to load through different environments. When it's about the skill, it's really about just practicing the skill. So if you're getting tired from the skill, you need to stop and rest. It's not really about the load. Load is done through different, um, different things. So things like running, sprinting, jumping are more of our movement skill activities where we don't necessarily have sets and reps which we, we stick to a lot. It's yeah. really about, well, we have a guide based off time constraints and what we need to try and achieve, but it's really about making sure that that's done as the highest quality. And then we go and strengthen the, the physiological structures of the body in the gym to then when they go back to that, be better at that. So increasing someone's hip and core strength through um, planks and power loft presses and different core exercises and even squats and, and compound movements and then going back to say wall drill is going to make them a little bit better. Then the, the wall drill itself is going to help with capacity but their ability to get those positions is going to be better because they're stronger. They're stronger through the hips, they're stronger through the core. So that's where the load tolerance comes into it. In terms of increasing their load tolerance, it's really about exposure to training mechanisms. So what you need to do is you need to pick the earliest phase in which they're going to get an adaptation from. So what's the most, what's the smallest, or what's the easiest way to get a stressor from them? So the one I talk about all the time is, if someone has never squatted before and they pick up a 10 kilo dumbbell and they start doing sets of 10 to 15 or 20 reps of dumbbell goblet squats and they are sore the next day or they feel it or they get tired towards the end of the last few reps start to break down technique, then we stop it and we're increasing their load tolerance. Now from there, next time we come around to do 12 kilos, now they can do the same amount of volume, the same amount of repetitions, but for 12 kilos. So their ability to tolerate that load and that resistance to fatigue has increased. Mm-hmm. And then we go to 15 kilos and 17. And then once we get to a certain stage where it's a bit of a um, anomaly just holding the kettlebell, the dumbbell there, we might go to double kettlebells. And then we go to the back squat or the front squat with the barbell. Rather than just going to the barbell, we've now given the adaptation phase a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Their ability to tolerate the load is a lot better. It's a nicer way to train in terms of progression and progressive overload. But essentially what we're doing is we're increasing their load tolerance. Now they can handle more load tolerance. Thinking that on a broader spectrum is people talk about in the load management world about how many days a week we should train, how much time we should train. There's definitely a balance between how much time you need to train to get a response to a stimulus and certain things like speed training requires much higher intensities, much lower volumes than say something like aerobic capacity. 
So that's different in a sense. But what we need to acknowledge is that if we give them the opportunity to develop a greater base of load tolerance through different training mechanisms, then it's much easier to increase the opportunity to train them and that window of opportunity. And if we're trying to improve, and it even goes back to improving their skills, like if they're not available to train because they're sore and tired, we need to increase their resistance fatigue so they can handle more training loads. So, you know, there's people that I know at the moment are talking about, you know, you shouldn't really train more than three or four days a week for this and that. It's, it's, really, not, it's really not based on that. It's like, no. well, can the athlete tolerate it? Yes, well, let's do that. If they're doing yeah. too much in which it's affecting other sessions and especially skill sessions, then bring it back. Something we do a lot is, is that we have, like I guess we call it leveling up. So we have different phases and different levels for our acute early onset of training. So things like our jumps progressions, our sprints progressions, um, our accessory progressions. So we have accessory core progressions, um, accessory hip progressions, um, which are more isolated activities, more isometric based activities, which are designed for exactly that, load tolerance. So something we do first is for um, our strengthening work. So this would be a good example. So our running mechanics, we have our running mechanics drills, which are movement skills based, which is about coordination. And it's about muscular coordination, movement patterns, motor control, all that sort of stuff. And then side to that, we do joint specific um, sprinting strengthening, which we start off as basic isometrics, which is basic tendon, ligament, and um, joint strength in the joints. Um, and then we progress that to more dynamic movements. So one we're doing at the moment is really simple. We do um, a short adductor hold, a long adductor hold, and we do a, a supinated sprinter march. So you have your shoulders on one edge of the bench, heels on the other end, and you hold one leg in. Now, if that's too hard, we just regress that in base of the movement and the difficulty, and there's ways around that, and then we just progress up to a certain load. And basically what we want to do is we want that isometric time to replicate how long they're going to do the exercise for. So if we're going to march for 30 seconds on the wall, and we want to build that strength for that, then we need to be able to hold those isometrics for about 30 seconds. Now, there'll be some research and literature out there that say how long isometrics should be done for. We know that for tendon strength, things around 45 seconds are, are there. That's a little bit different. That's more rehab. That's more down the rabbit hole of um, inhibition, which is a little bit different. I'm talking about more the athlete feeling a movement. This is how simple it is. It's about the athlete feeling the movement, tolerating it, and then building the capacity on that. Mm. So we do the isometric, and some we build up to that 40 seconds, and then we make it a dynamic isometric. So as simple as we do a supinated sprinter march, and we start alternating legs. And then that changes to, and this is some of Franz Bosch's stuff, uh, um, uh, a European-based coach who's really into more the motor skill and acquisition of movements, where we'll do like um, a snap. So you've got one leg in the supinated position, one leg tucked into the sprinter snap, start, and then you'll snap it down, you'll change legs dynamically on the bench like a jump or an exchange, and that's gonna be quite a rapid movement, but that's the same as what happens when the leg pours down in the running action at high speeds, and you're hitting that ground contact, and you're having that um, amortization phase in the ground, you're preparing that, you're preparing the joint for that. So across that whole spectrum of exercises, starting from isometric moving to dynamic, we're, we're conditioning that part of the body for the action that's gonna occur. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do is, what, what, what our sort of philosophy and thought process on that is that now I've, given the, the, the potential injury side or potential breakdown, a really strong base of support, a really strong um, conditioning and load tolerance. So then it can handle load, it can handle high loads, yeah. it can handle high velocities. And it's almost like- Going back to this, that slowly build up yep. to the tolerance point. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's insurance. It's almost insurance training or robust. People people call them robustness circuits or resiliency circuits. Call it whatever you want circuits. It's just really 
It's just, just building the tank, building the and foundation. It, and yeah, look, we can we can delve into the physiology. We can talk about some of the research articles and biopsies and what they find in muscle fibers at different and you know Caldita stuff of um, triphasic training sort of delves in this to a little bit. That's a little bit different because it's really about developing each um, muscle action differently in terms of isometric, eccentric, and concentric. This is more just about well, what does the joint need to do? Where is it at? Can it hold a static position? If not, well, then there's a lot of room for development there. If the body responds to that, then it's going to be great. If you if you can't hold, and this is the thing, if you can't hold a isolated sprinter march, how are you going to be able to hold that position running at high velocities? So if you're playing basketball or something, you're sprinting down the court, you're probably breaking through the hip. You're probably breaking through the knee. You're probably going through poor biomechanics. And so this is the relationship between load tolerance and movement skills is that they should help. So the load tolerance exercises should help develop the motor patterns, develop yeah. the movement skills. Just as a byproduct. As a byproduct. Mm-hmm. So... To me, they're the two things that cause the non-contact injuries is the movement skill, the coordination to cut, the angles to get into, and then also the joint strength through those angles and the resiliency to handle the load. So if things do break down, your chance of injury is less because you can handle more. I think that's if... What about like a, just a, like a body that's imbalanced or not in complete homeostasis? In terms of like asymmetries, like movement yeah, asymmetries, or- just... I guess it does come... I'm just talking a more broader term of things that you've simplified. Yeah. But, like, you know, just say that someone... Like, say, like, your average AFL player, like, they're maybe quite dominant. Yeah. So, that's a good one. So, this is confusing. People talk about... And I actually learned this, funnily enough, at a powerlifting seminar. Now, I don't really like powerlifting a lot because it's so down one rabbit hole. But it was, um, it was that one with Chad Wednesday Smith. And he came out and he talked about how... He's got healthy shoulders, yet he's done two pulling exercises in five or ten years. And he said he couldn't do them because pull-ups, he was too fat. And the gym he trained at only had one 50-pound dumbbell. And he could just what do the pulling, What were the pulling exercises he did? He didn't do pulling exercises. That was the thing. He just oh. bench-pressed healthy. So powerlifter, bench squat, deadlift. And he just bench-pressed healthy. And he might do like some different like rotator cuff work and that sort of stuff. And it just made me think that sometimes we get caught up with these pushing-pulling ratios, these um, quad-dominant, hamstring-dominant athletes. What I, I would actually challenge people to look at those movement patterns. And what you find, it's not that the muscle is overactive. It's like, it's more that it's the motor pattern is the body... Ch- the reason the muscle is more physically developed is because your motor pattern prefers to get in that position. So your body awareness says, I want to go into a quad-dominant position because mm. that's where I'm more comfortable you perform the quad-dominant position better because you've developed muscular hypertrophy or more cross-sectional area over time. If you start giving the athlete the opportunity to express different angles and to practice hinge-based movements and stuff, you'll find that that'll just even out. And I'm telling you from experience that it happens. And that's why, for me, it's more motor patterning. It's more neuromuscular control. And I don't think people address that. They think, oh, we'll just do pulling more. But it's not... And and what happens there, okay, by doing pulling, yeah, if they're doing the pulling technique correctly... It's not the strength of the weight or the stress of the weight. It's actually the neuromuscular coordination of performing that exercise more often to where the skill becomes more frequent. And then the the strengthening of the exercises evens out more that way. A really simple way to understand about this, and I've written a blog about it, is about the way females land. So females land differently to males because of their orthopedic structure. What you also find with females is naturally they have more quad dominant. Now they're more quad dominant because the way the the femoral head sits in the hip joint is wider 
obviously to allow for reproduction. Mm. So physiologically, they're structured differently through the hips. Now, because of that, because of the way it's the, fem- the femoral head sits in the hip, it causes the... It's harder for them to utilize their hips in absorbing force or it's less programmed in their brain to want to adopt that part. Yeah. So it's something we actually... And now we've just had 100 girls go through our program and the biggest thing we teach is that hip position landing. And it's not about being hip dominant. It's about evenly breaking through the hips, yeah. knees, and ankles. And we actually use this at work. It's really cool. We've got a skeleton in the... Um, in the gym and what we do is we actually show this to everyone. We show it to athletes and stuff and we show them the landing mechanics and when you look at a skeleton and you push it down and you let the knees go highly dominant, you can just see the hips don't break and it just looks bad and you don't need to be a scientist or you don't need to understand human physiology. No, it doesn't look It looks like stiff. It looks stiff and it looks like, oh, that doesn't look good for the knees. You can see that and the moment we break at the hips, you go, oh, look at that flow. What do you mean by when you say break at the hips? So the hips translate backwards and we get a hinge occurring in the hip. So the hip angle actually flexes. And it's not occurring, don't confuse this with the lower back of the lumbar, that's different, that's a different joint. We're talking about the hip capsule, uh, we're talking about the femur in the head of the hip actually hinging backwards. And so that's a really cool way to look at it. And what actually happens is when you're holding the skeleton and you're moving it, it actually moves so much more fluidly when you move, when you let the hip break. And so that's a really cool way to look at it. And so. What's really cool as well with this group of girls, we've had predominantly between 14 and 18. And because they're still in that motor learning acquisition phase and they're still really pliable to learning um, physical literacy movements, is they actually adapt like this. Like they adapt so quickly and it's so cool to see. Yet I've, we work with some of our athletes and this happens for males too. Like females are at a greater, I guess, disadvantage to this because of the, the biomechanical st- structure of their body. Um, but we have people that come in and it's actually harder to train this to our 20 to 25 to 28 year olds because they're so quad dominant because their awareness through their hips isn't, isn't there. And so it's actually harder to teach them than it is to teach, um, a younger person because they, they're not so ingrained to one motor pattern and then, then. So you're really saying it's not necessarily about the race. So like it, and someone who is what we would call like, you know, quad dominant just by refining their motor patterns mm. and their their own body awareness mm. rather than maybe changing that pull to push ratio which is a bit of a cliche yep. by refining that motor patterns their body awareness you can actually sort of reverse and prevent yep. you show it. me someone who's quad dominant or chest dominant and I'll show you someone who's a pusher and a squatter it's as simple as that yeah. now obviously the quick fix is the ratios because yeah. what you're doing is you're exposing their motor patterns to more of that action but it really comes down to you don't have to put them in that. You can put them in different environments. So landing mechanics is a great one. And then we start to draw comparisons. So Dow hinging is a great one. Like people hate it, but put that in your warm-ups. Um, banded good mornings, putting a band over mm. the shoulders, pushing the hips back. If you can drip feed more opportunities for their motor skills to develop in the hinge pattern, then you'll watch like their strength will go up because their motor skill goes up. Um, like that's a big part of strength as well. And that's why I really have a, um, a dis. I really get a distaste in my mouth when um, people put up, you know, on social media and stuff, how quickly their clients improved and this and that. Like they've gone from 30 kilos to 100 kilos in two weeks. What an amazing deadlift progression. What that is, is that the coaching, and they and this is really important lesson yeah. for, for young coaches and stuff as well, is I understand that what you've done is you've, you've, you've increased their, their neuromuscular awareness to adapt. You've increased their strength by 300, 400%. The, yeah. the muscle takes up to 12 weeks to adapt. So there is no way that that muscle increased the capacity and to lift 30 the kilos. Yes. So what what you've done is is you've increased 
their motor control to perform the action. So now their motor pattern is more proficient because of your coaching, which is great. Like, let's not just, I'm not taking that away. Mm. You've, you've given them the tools to move more effectively and efficiently. Now they're utilizing the actual musculature they have. And that is why coaching is so important and why having, con- and that's why we have, we don't do PT. We have coaches, you know, because that way our, co- our athletes can train every single day with mm-hmm. coaches, supervisors. It's a slightly different model. But what that allows is it allows that constant education. So we should really, we should, tr- we should be in a rush. We should really be in a rush to get our athletes and clients to the stage in which they're at their motor pattern peak or their, their motor control peak because then that's when they can really put enough physiological stress to get adaptation. And that's why going back to sort of older school trainings, why machine weights is quite quite effective for bodybuilding and stuff because the lack of um, intermuscular coordination that's required, mm. the lack of muscular coordination that's required is so little that they can just chuck on a weight. You can narrow the, the awareness down. Yeah, because it's just like, oh, for a leg press, for example, the execution of the exercise is so simple to learn that it's not a high neuromuscular demand. That all we need to do is just put the weight on there, get that morphological of, stress. A little bit of knee extension, a little bit of... Yeah, it's very easy to control than, you know, uh, than a, than a squat. A squat is a very complex thing to do. You know, you're breaking through three different joints, you're stabilizing the spine, you're keeping the shoulders upright, you're keeping the neck... Like, there's a lot going on there across the whole body. So it's a much harder thing to teach. Therefore, it's a lot harder to stress. So in that sense, like, that, that's a really important thing to understand is when you're improving someone that... It's, you need to get them to their capacity, their movement school capacity. And once they're at that movement school capacity, then you get the low tolerance. And if you can get those two things right, you will see a large reduction. So if we're going to go back to injuries and, and really talk into... Let, like, let's talk about stuff that's training the moment. So like, okay, hamstrings and ACLs. Huge numbers, like just stupid numbers. Like, you know, I've got some numbers here. So hamstrings, for me, so hamstrings shouldn't really happen. I'll be pretty... I don't want to be controversial, but for me... Soft tissues injuries shouldn't really, they shouldn't really happen. Jesus. They, like, there's no real reason why soft tissue injury should happen if you've tolerated the athlete. Are you saying without external, we're still talking without external forces? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, someone running and sprinting. Now, I can understand in a 100 meter sprint at the Olympics, I can understand a hamstring tearing because that athlete is trying to run a speed they've never ran before. Mm-hmm. And if the support staff and the physical prep staff, and the therapists and the athlete themselves has done everything right, then there's still a chance it'll happen because they're trying to run a PB when they race. So you're putting the body... They're pushing the limits. You're pushing yeah. the body to a limit it's never been to before. So if it goes to a limit it's never been to before... It's like chucking a- your foot down, pedal to the metal in the car and like for, you know, as fast as you can for as yeah. long as you can. Something's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, exactly. So you can expect that there's going to be a case where, where something happens there. But... If you have given them the highest technical proficiency that they could have, and which we should really never stop, you should always be, because you don't just get to a motor skill level and be like, oh, yeah, I've got it now. You need to constantly refine it because you learn new skills and this and that. And then you need to allow them, and this is where cycles comes in. So powerlifting does this really well, um, where they cycle training, where you accumulate cycles. It's the same with sprinters. Over time, they have a peak where they need to get through certain cycles, um, and even long-distance runners as well, where you accumulate training blocks now, as long as those training blocks are done with the best technique, if you add in high-quality load-tolerance blocks, then they can just simply handle more work. So if you've done that right, then you shouldn't get injuries. Mm. We're getting soft tissue injuries, which means one of, the, one of those two things is breaking down. So we're either not getting the load tolerance, which load management plays its role in making decisions, but it shouldn't be the reason. If we're obviously not getting enough... 
it's more more the reason why someone might get injured, but not the reason the sole reason to prevent. Yes. That makes yes. Sense. Yeah. So I would say that in elite sports, the load tolerance should be good because the load management should be good, but I believe it's probably more the movement skills. And I'll be pretty confident, like, you know, we've got the AFL on right now. If we broke down every single player's running technique, I can tell you why players are getting injured. Like, you can look at Buddy Franklin right now. Like, his, his lordosis through his spine is the reason why he's probably getting a lot of lower leg injuries. Like, he's got hamstring history, he's got lower back history. And that doesn't take a genius to understand that. But if you look at how he runs, he's... His technical model of running isn't quite good. He over-rotates, um, he rotates through his shoulders, causing rotation in his torso. His rib cage doesn't sit quite right. His up, what that's caused by could potentially be through his shoulder posture. We'd have to have deeper analysis. But then looking at where he's striking his foot and stuff and where that force is going, there's a lot of things to look at there. As a 29-year-old AFL football, one of the best in the game, how much time are you going to spend breaking that down? I don't know. How a, much, yeah, how much... There's how a party yeah. have to go back to yeah. reset. So there's a great case study with um, Adam Larkham, who's an Australian sprints coach. Fantastic coach. Very good principles. Um, very good technical model. Sprinting teaches a very good technical model and comes from a physiotherapy background. So for me, it ticks, ticks a lot of boxes in terms of his understanding of the human body and what's going on from a therapy perspective, from a movement perspective, from an S&C perspective. Um, and he worked with um, pretty famously with Kyle Hooker. Um, Kyle Hooker, who's um, Essendon player, pretty well known for having about four years of horrid hamstring injuries, mm. 12 months with Adam, working specifically on his running mechanics and addressing um, breakdowns um, and um, asymmetries in his in his joints, which would be done through manual manipulation, and then reinforcing that with good motor control. And this is another cool thing. So this is where it gets confusing because sometimes the, the motor pattern blockage can be caused from um, a handbrake in the body. And so what Adam does, and what this is what a lot of the, the coaches that I, that I really respect are into, is they're able to address the mobility restriction to then increase the capacity to perform the exercise. So when he's performing the sprint technique stuff, he's in a better biomechanical position because those handbrakes have been taken off. So it's easier for him neuromuscularly to learn the skill because now his joints are moving through the correct ranges of motion. And so he's increasing that awareness through those joint ranges of motion. So it's really important that he learns that skill in that environment. He's gone on about 12 to 18 months, touch wood for him. He doesn't range up. He's gone on to be, I think, All-Australian and have a really yeah. successful, earn probably double the contract he is on. Um, really successful. So I think that's a model that could definitely take off. AFL clubs in particular are a little bit precious about handing over the keys to these sorts of players. Mm. But it, it's you can't deny it. Like, okay, so he's tried this. He's had this treatment. He's had that treatment. He's done eccentric work. He's done, he would have done Nordics. He would have done hamstring slides. He would have done oh, every sure. hamstring exercise on the board. They would have measured his load tolerance through Nord board. They would have done all that sort of stuff. They would have looked at acute chronic ratios. They would look at GPS data. But the thing was, he continued to break down at a certain point. So doesn't really matter what else it was. It had to be a movement deficiency that was causing that mechanism where mm. too much stress was going through a certain point and the same injury was occurring. And so they've addressed that. And what do you know? He's not getting the injury anymore. Surioli was another one that was probably, and he's very over-rotated through his upper body, um, which there's a really important thing when we look at sprint mechanics, the oscillation of the shoulders and the hips. The oscillation should occur at the same time from the opposite arm to the opposite leg. So we should see, say for example, the right knee should occur into a high knee position the same time the left thumb um, breaks towards the cheek or the chin. Yeah. Um, when the foot strikes the ground, the back hand should be fully extended behind the body. And that what that does is that causes like a pendulum balance between the body. So it allows us to stay upright, maintain good posture. 
If the person's rotating through the shoulders either through a restriction or through a motor pattern deficiency, that's going to cause a throw-off of the oscillation through the hips. A throw-off of the oscillation of the hips can generally create rotation through the hips and then malalignment through the legs. And when that occurs, that's when we see the over-pulling. And it's really mm. common. It's more of a pulling with the hamstring where the hamstring may overstride. Yeah. And that's where the pulling pain occurs or the, the injury occurs. So there's so much to say about the technical model or the, the motor skill being executed effectively to reduce injuries. And I can, I'm pretty confident, like I can't speak for every AFL club, but I'm pretty confident there's not many people addressing this. Rugby's doing it quite well now. Um, there's a guy, Roger Fabri, up in Sydney who's consulted for a few clubs and he's been consulted specifically to run speed training um, more recently, Melbourne Storm hired Adam Basil to, as I'm, I'm fairly aware, to specifically run speed training for the guys. Um, and and I think they're, they're getting pretty good like re- return on investment in terms of injury reduction in that area because they're actually giving time to address the movement skills. And the hard thing is, is you're not seeing an investment in 12 months. Like If you take an 18-year-old, put 10 kilos on him, he's more useful to a football club than 12 months of sprint mechanics. Yeah. But four years of sprint mechanics yeah. might mean a 12-year career instead of a six-year career. And that's the thing. Are you going to take the punt? Are you going to take that risk? If you create an environment that has that as part of it, and I believe strongly AFL, again, as an example, can do that, there's no reason why they can't find two hours a week to practice some some rudimentary running mechanics. Mm. There, there's a, I, I, I can tell it you. It just seems like it's just sometimes we're in, in too much of a hurry to just develop as much as you can. Yeah, and a couple of little shortcuts just means that down the track, yeah, everything looks. You, know, it's just like when you watch someone they're doing it, uh, you know, like a, an exercise wrong, you're like ah no they'll be alright. Yeah. But down the track, yeah. Suddenly, in well in, in hindsight you can go, geez, I really wish like we had it broken it down. Yeah. Perfected the mechanics. And I think the quickest thing. Oh sorry, the easiest way to understand this is. The quicker you you gain it, the quicker you lose it. The longer it takes to gain, the longer you have mm. it. So motor skills and motor patterns, as you develop them, you're gonna hold like why, them forever. It's like why, like strength takes the longest to build up, but you hold on to it for the longest. And as a little misbuster, when people talk about muscle memory or the mind muscle connection, that's what it is. It's actually the motor skill connection, mm. and that's that's actually what we're addressing. Um, we're addressing the brain's ability to control and contract the body in the way it needs to occur to elicit the movement pattern. If that's better then yes, your, your training gains are going to be better. Like It's as simple as that. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think if we if people can just be more mindful of that, I think that's where rehabilitation services can definitely understand more by just looking at, okay, so if I want to get this person back to return to play, what does good running mechanics look like? Like We might not be able to have the opportunity to see what their pre-running mechanics looks like, but let's look at their post-injury and let's actually start to address okay, well, where is that based off the technical model? Okay, maybe there's actually some other reasons. Okay, maybe you actually understand more now why these injuries occurred. Um, so, you know, if we can look at that and really understand that, I think that can help. The the ACL one in terms of, I think the landing mechanics, especially in females, is a big one. Like we know AFLW's been so prominent with that. Even other sports, netball, basketball, there's always been a higher rate. If the girls can spend more time in landing mechanics positions, we teach a lot of the athletic stance, so it's a small bend in the knees, a big hip hinge, mm. a low center of mass, so the body is well balanced. We'll do that, we'll palpate, we'll try to push them over. That's a really strong position, teaching them awareness through that, because we can start to do that. We can get 30, 40 reps if we do that with our jumping, our landing, some of our 
high volume jumps, we can replicate that position 40, 50 times in 10 minutes. That's a really effective way to teach that. Um, but I guess something I'd like to also touch on is just how this approach can really actually be an investment. So we actually had an athlete who, she tells me a bit more than I think it is, but she's talking more of, in terms of upwards of $8,000 last year on physiotherapy services. And for the record, like I like all allied health. I'm not, not mouthing any allied health. Touch wood, since she's been training with us for 12 months, she hasn't been to the physio for probably six months, five months. So she's probably saving a bit on physio bills. And so that's what we should be doing, but that should be our job. Our job should be reducing reactive rehabilitative, rehabilitative-based services through preventative measures. And for me, so that's a measure for me. So I can't tell you I've prevented an injury, but what we have prevented is someone who's been chronically injured for a period of time, who's chronically been dependent on reactive-based therapies and services, who now has taken a preventative approach and now all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but over a period of time, like it's been long, it's been an arduous process over 12 months and it's a continuous process and now it's a maintenance process where she needs to continue to do it throughout her athletic career, um, who's now probably invested and probably saving money yeah. as a result. And not only is she saving money, but she's invested. Now she's so much more aware of so many... Her, her motor skills have improved. So her awareness, she has these tools It's now. not even... A, it's not just the an acute investment. It's, yeah. like you said, like that motor... Like that motor... Her development in her own awareness mm. and her own body's motor skills, it's just... It'll be phenomenal how much... Like you won't be able to measure how no, much... You can't. Time. It's like you go to the physio, you have a sore shoulder, you get some dry needling, you leave, you feel better. You go to the massage therapist, you get a rub on your hamstrings, you feel better. You go and work with a good coach. You learn correct landing mechanics. You learn correct running mechanics. You learn how to... <laughs> you have st- a successful career with no injuries. <laughs> you learn to stabilize your shoulders. And, and all of a sudden, you don't need to worry about that because you're not letting your body move wrong. And the more you can educate people on that, the, the I mean, look at this. ACL, so, you know, we're talking about $142 million um, over, you know, 10 years and stuff wasted down the drain on ACL injuries. You're talking about each surgery costing the healthcare system upwards of $9,000. I mean, it's just ridiculous from, you know, 200,000 injuries in the last 10 years of a non-contact injury. Like that's... 200,000. We're talking about something, you know, 200,000, 15, you know, what is it? About 15,000 a year happening around the country that are avoidable. That are costing. It's actually sorry, thirteen thousand dollars. It's costing the healthcare system. So it's just imagine if we could just take this preventative approach. And to be honest, there's a the issue with the preventative market is there's a lot of people that still don't understand this stuff. And like we don't understand this stuff. We're still, I'm learning every single day. I'm learning more about technical models and how things should be carried out and how we should land and how we should jump and how we produce those forces. But if we can acknowledge that, you know, we're talking about okay. There's a case study of someone who's invested eight thousand dollars herself. Now she's invested, you know, an eighth of that and is saving money. We can potentially take that $142 million and it might look like $15 million mm-hmm. because we're talking about something that's non-contact, avoidable, preventative. But what preventative measures are we putting in place? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess to finish, those, those, those are the main things. The, if you can increase someone's ability to tolerate load, if you can improve their quality of movement and, you know, educate yourself on what that quality of movement is, then, then like, like let us know, like, like work out, are you improving your injury rate? Like take out the bad luck injuries and it'd be, it'd be really interesting to see what some people start to realize. 
but it's hard. It takes time. And this is something I learned from Dan Paff um, in 2015. And it, you really have to, it's hard work to prevent this stuff. It's hard work to know what is technically proficient. And I, I coach in a, in a gym with some coaches that are a little bit less skilled than me and a little bit less experienced. And I coach with coaches that are much more skilled with me. And all three of us will be watching an athlete at certain times. And the person less skilled than me is missing things that I'm seeing from a technical perspective. And the coach who's much more qualified than me and much more skilled than me is seeing even more technical things because it takes time, it takes education yeah. to learn these things. You know, you have to film your athletes, look at their movements. We look at multiplanar, we look at, we'll film an athlete on the same movement from three different angles. We'll see if it's crossing the midline of the body, we'll see if it, where their force is breaking through. Like we need to assess these things because the more we look at that, the more we sharpen our coaches are, the easier it is to understand the technical models, understand the motor patterns and hopefully re, uh, reduce those chances of the injuries occurring, reduce those soft tissues, reduce those preventive injuries. So if people can do that, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's still debatable about, I mean, different injuries have different mechanisms that occur, but, and different people are more predisposed to different injuries genetically and this and that. And there's collagen profile considerations and stuff and tendon profile considerations to make based off predisposition to genetics and um, bone density and that sort of stuff. But, but talking what we can control. But talking about what we control, that, that, that stuff you can measure. Like, for example, if you've got someone who's got low bone density, yes, they're more susceptible to stress fractures. So yes, your low management stuff has to be particular, but same, same principles apply. Mm. Do they move well? Yes or no. Can they tolerate the load you're applying them with? Yes or no. That's the simplest two questions you need to ask yourself whenever you're training. If we can do that, our duty of care improves, and I'd be fascinated to know if and that preventative approach can sort of be taken going forward. So that's my two cents, two reasons, <laughs> two rationales for injuries, especially preventative injuries. Makes sense. Groovy. Groovy. <laughs>